Hello and welcome to A Moon State of Crypto Brainstorm, where we come together once a week to discuss the latest trends and analysis in the crypto world. All opinions expressed by A Moon staff or guests of the podcast are solely their own opinions. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment advice. This podcast is powered by Blockworks Group, the only events and podcast production company I trust. For access to the premier digital asset conferences and in-depth podcast content, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. Welcome back to Moon State of Crypto podcast. One of the biggest talking points in the tail end of 2019, and perhaps an increasingly important point of contention, is the upcoming Bitcoin halving, where Bitcoin's block reward will halve from 12.5 BTC to 6.25 BTC. This halving will occur at block 630,000, which is estimated to be mined on the 12th of, March, 12th of May 2020. Some have argued that, as has been the case for both the 2012 and 2016 halving events, this halving will be the impetus behind Bitcoin at a later date reaching all-time highs. But believers in even the weakest form of the efficient market hypothesis would be skeptical of this claim. In addition, there's been a lot of great research done to understand the economic implications of these halving events and consequently Bitcoin's finance supply. Today, I'm joined by Hansen and Rahul from the Amun team. And our external guest this week is Hasu, one of the best known researchers in the crypto asset industry from his blog UncommonCore.co and his work at Deribit Insights. Hasu recently published a research report titled A Model for Bitcoin Security and the Decline in Block Subsidy, with James Prestwich and Brandon Curtis, which helped formalize a model for better understanding Bitcoin's economic security to understand the impact of Bitcoin's decreasing block reward. This report is a great way to better understand the implications of the upcoming halving and will be a focus of today's discussion. So without further ado, let's dive right in. Uh, Hasu, I think probably the best way to start this conversation is before we get into Bitcoin halving and kind of the economic impacts of that, if you first kind of explain what got you into crypto, what got you into Bitcoin, and then a bit more about what you currently do within the space. Hi, yeah, thanks for having me. Um, I've been in the crypto space for a bit more than two years now. Um, I'm very passionate about the idea of non-sovereign money because money and finance in general are spaces with huge barriers to entry that have um, largely been protected from disruption and free market competition for a long time. And I'm just uh, genuinely curious what the free market can do with them. But I also see how like these barriers to entry, they exist for a very good reason and they are very hard to break. So I agree with Satoshi when he says that the only, the only way to compete with the, the large banks and government um, control over money is to create a distributed system that cannot easily be shut down. Um, so I've been infected <laughs> with this idea for, for over two years now. And um, my goal is just to learn as much as possible. And I found that writing, writing about my thoughts um, has just helped me tremendously um, as a sort of feedback loop um basically learn about something write it down teach it to myself and then publish it and you know get feedback from other people on these ideas and it's just um a tremendous way of learning so uh, writing a blog was a very natural um way of doing this um i later joined forces with suzu uh, who runs a prop trading firm based in singapore so we talked every day pretty much uh, we share all of the same interests and um, have great conversations and then we just started writing a blog post together. Um, and Sue also went with me to Deribit Insights. Uh, so we now uh, write the same blog that we wrote before for Deribit, which is the largest um, crypto options exchange. Okay, th- thanks for that. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's especially interesting because so I, I guess when you think about our audience and who listens to this podcast, it probably can be split into people that are very in the know about crypto and the vast majority of them, I think would be very familiar with your kind of work. Cause as, as I said, you, you're probably one of the most well-known researchers in the space. And a lot of people on the more traditional finance side who would probably get a lot of benefit out of paying more attention to your work. So I think 
this is kind of like a really good segue to talk about the issue at hand, which I think, you know, probably is the most, one of the most important topics one could have a podcast in in 2020. And so I guess the best way to start talking about the Bitcoin halving is to really set the scene for what the what role Bitcoin mining and the Bitcoin block reward plays in the economics of Bitcoin. So I guess, Hasu, the first question I really want to get from you, just in the simplest way possible, could you help explain why Bitcoin needs mining and what role the block reward plays in this? Sure. So to understand why Bitcoin needs mining, we have to look at what is the system supposed to do? So Satoshi imagined a system that has certain properties and then he designed the system um, using various mechanisms like cryptography and economic incentives um, and other cryptographic primitives basically to, to um, create these properties. Um, Bitcoin's ledger is um, supposed to answer the question of who owns what when in a permissionless and censorship-resistant way. And as alluded to earlier, the who owns what part of that question is pretty much solved with asymmetric key cryptography um, because any coin is, is uh, controlled by a private key and only the owner of that private key can spend the coin and anyone else in the network can uh, basically uh, easily verify that uh, that this is this is correct that that when a coin has been spent that uh, the um, private key was used for that um, but the second part the when this is extremely difficult and has not been done before bitcoin in a distributed way why is that the case establishing an order of transactions is necessary if you want to prevent people from spending the same coin multiple times right this is called double spending you can easily do this on a central server, but Satoshi wanted to avoid that, right? And I have a quote prepared. Satoshi said, governments are good at cutting off the heads of a centrally controlled network like Napster, but pure peer-to-peer -peer networks like Nutella and Tor seem to be holding their own. So that tells us a lot about his thought process. He wanted a distributed way to do timestamping pretty much. And that your intuition would say um, you, when you have two transactions floating around in a network and you're a node in that network, you just use the first transaction that you see as valid and the second one as invalid. You just ignore it. But the problem is in a distributed system, there is no such thing as a globally consistent first. What one node sees first, another node might see second. And there's just no way for them to come to any consensus uh, about which actually came first. Um, so we needed a mechanism to come to agreement about which of, which of two transactions really came first. And it doesn't matter which one, as long as we all agree. Um, and the solution that's also laid out in the Bitcoin white paper is a distributed timestamping server. In Bitcoin, nodes can vote for state updates by appending blocks with new transactions uh, and validity rules ensure that transactions can't be double spent in the same blockchain. That is what we already talked about. Um, and the voting power is based on computational power. So um, hashing power, just computers hashing the same thing, uh, or just publishing hashes, right? Um, and um, to do it, well, these kind of computations are costly and the Bitcoin network pays them to do this. They get paid to vote in the native unit, which is Bitcoin. And this signal that they release, which, which transactions came first, that is uh, followed automatically by all the other nodes in the network. So there's, uh, there's basically a, a history that has a certain number of votes behind it, votes in the form of hash power, and the other nodes just follow it. And if they previously followed like an old state with less votes, then they abandon that and switch to the new one. Um, that kind of mechanism is necessary because not all nodes at on are online at the same time, right? So if you, if you uh, download a new node and sync to the blockchain, then you must be able to basically catch up to what is, 
what is the the latest version of the blockchain so you see everything that everyone else sees and you agree and this all of this establishes an incentive mechanism where you have basically a a flow that's going in a in a circle so you can imagine you have users users give value to a block reward and the block reward incentivizes miners to establish a stable consensus and the stable consensus is used and valued by the users and that's why they pay for it so you you, you have this very organic um, flow there and why is it a problem if the block reward decreases so miners cannot just do good things they can't just make a stable consensus they can also make an unstable consensus so they can do bad stuff and Anyone can be a miner. So the logical conclusion from that is anyone can do bad stuff in Bitcoin if they want to. The only way to prevent this is to incentivize the majority of hash rate to be honest. Okay. <laughs> that was quite a, a detailed explanation. Good explanation, but detailed explanation of, um, of uh, yeah, how Bitcoin works overall. Um, I want to jump in here, actually. I see it always from two perspectives, right? I see it from the perspective of the miners, which you have addressed a bit. and We can go into it, uh, you know, right afterwards. But I would like to start with the perspective of our audience, you know, the everyday guy on the street. Um, you know, if you, go, if you go on Twitter, LinkedIn, all the social media, the big debate here right now is what's going to happen to the price of Bitcoin as a result of the halving? And... Um, I've looked at several predictions out there. Many of them say it will go up. The most prominent graph that I see uh, is, you know, the one where it shows uh, halvings in 2016, 2012, and the price of Bitcoin uh, went up in the, in the, I think, nine to twelve months, six to twelve months afterwards. Um, do you, Hasu, or actually Rahul or Lanre, think that will happen as well this time again? Um, yeah, so let's let's start this off by talking about the perspective of, you know, the everyday normal person who cares mainly about the Bitcoin price. Then we go over to the interesting part, the miners. Uh, to chime in here, I think one of the one of the interesting things to note that's different about this time than uh, all of the previous uh, happenings that sort of subsequently led to uh, bull runs in Bitcoin is that this time there's a pretty robust market of derivatives, uh, particularly ways for people to take a short position on Bitcoin. And if you look at the, the volume of the derivatives market, it's at an all-time high. It's roughly uh, 2 to 2.5x the volume of the spot market. Um, and I could easily see that uh, sort of acting as uh, sort of downward pressure on the, uh, uh, the, the Bitcoin price. Um, whereas in previous bull runs, you know, the scarcity was a signal, uh, um, uh, was a signal that, that price may rise. Uh, I think, I think, uh, this time around things may be different because, uh, there's just more liquidity in the market. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, um, I think that those are good points. Um, so my general, um, stance on the topic is, um, it's probably, like none of us probably, so, so we all probably believe in some version of the efficient market hypothesis in general, but none of us re believe all that strongly in it. Uh, otherwise, we wouldn't be spending so much time in the crypto space if we didn't think it was tremendously undervalued. Um, and I do think that um, that the halvening can, be, um, can have an, an impact on the price, um, but maybe not, maybe not in the way that, that it causes a supply reduction. I, I think it's just, um, if we look at a different data point, which is a smaller uh, crypto network, Decred. So what they, they thought they were very clever uh, and would reduce um, a lot of volatility around hash rate by removing the halvings. So they have the same supply schedule, but uh, the supply decreases gradually. Um, instead of abruptly in the case of Bitcoin. Um, and as a result of that, this project, although it's like it's technically and community-wise, um, it's, it's a very, very good, uh, serious project, um, they are struggling to attract any kind of investment um, 
because they they just lack this marketing in event that is the halvening in Bitcoin and on other chains. So I mainly see it as that. It's 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 something that drives the news cycle and um, it's just a tremendous uh, tremendous thing to talk about and and. Uh, attracts a lot of people into the space and gives people something to talk about. Okay, but based on what the two of you just said, both of you, um, it sounds to me like you're saying that the the price increase, the previous two price increases after the last two halvenings are not mainly attributed to the supply reduction part of, of the halvening. Yeah? Is that, is that what you guys are saying? Um, well, it's, it's hard to say, right? Um, so it could be due to the marketing that is the result of the halving or it could be due to the supply it's, uh, or it could just be co completely independent of that. A lot of things are happening in the macro economy as well. I would see Bitcoin uh, in a almost perfect storm of like macroeconomic conditions there that all uh, make it a great investment at this, uh, at this time. Uh, and any of that could be the reason for previous supply increases. Yeah, and, and I, I think I can kind of add to this as well. So one problem I've had, especially whenever I've, I've seen a graph which kind of plots the 2012 and 2016 halvings and then says, okay, yeah, Bitcoin's price increased about one year after 2012 and one year after 2016. Therefore, the same is going to happen in 2020. Is that it pretty much ignores all the different factors which you know influenced Bit the Bitcoin market at those two events. And, you know, I, I think kind of getting back into at least the mining side of the equation, because I think this is quite a good point to kind of segue to talk a bit more about the paper that Hassi wrote is that, so one thing that I've always thought that, like, at the end of the day, miners mine and have committed capital to Bitcoin because of the expectation of profit. Uh, and I can imagine that something like, Like one thing that maybe people haven't talked about a lot is that the Bitcoin halving probably could lead to some kind of consolidation in the kinds of miners that mine and the diversity in mining. Because, you know, uh, especially given the Bitcoin price has stayed relatively like I'm like hasn't or isn't very likely to reach the same highs it did in, in late 2017, at least in the short term. Uh I guess this halving, at least in the face of it, would just make it very much harder, much harder for miners that perhaps exist on the margins of profitability to maintain that going forward. And I think it's very interesting to think about, okay, based on that assumption that we know that miners will make less money post-halving, what impact will that have on Bitcoin's economics as a whole? Because, I mean, it's quite interesting to think about this in the context of just yesterday or a few days ago, it was announced that some miners are coming together to try to take 12.5% of Bitcoin Cash's block reward uh, to use for a dev fund, which, you know, isn't possible in a scenario in which, or that kind of coordination isn't possible in a scenario in which mining is extremely decentralized and there aren't quite large cartels. So I guess there are the arguments. If you think about the kind of the second order impacts of something like the Bitcoin halving, especially when you consider what effect it could have on miners' abilities to, like, as Hasu said in the paper, kind of miners' expected revenues from these kind of things, maybe the situation doesn't look as nice or as positive uh, as if we were to just ignore all those factors and focus simply on what the Bitcoin price did around those two events. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree with you, Lanra. I'll let you jump in in a second, uh, Hasu. Basically, it's like, imagine the four of us have a business Uh, we, we sell a certain good apples for $2 per apple. And starting from May 20th or block 610,000, um, the price is going to cut in half. I mean, it certainly will have an impact on miners. Most likely will just you know, will make mining unprofitable for those who don't have optimized or like really efficient uh, equipment, right? And, you know, the other input is electricity. So only the ones that have very cheap electricity, very optimized equipment to mine, um, are going to be competitive. Uh, I think, you know, it might drive out lots of small miners. Um, yeah, in general, yeah, we should absolutely expect if, if the pool of um, SHA-256 block rewards uh, halves, then we should expect a significant, a significant portion of, uh, of miners um, 
to to well go out of business, right? Maybe not immediately, but definitely over the over the longer term. And um, the reason for that is that where well, you can see mining as uh, a sort of dollar auction, right? So uh, if one dollar is uh, is auctioned between miners and in an efficient market, which mining is definitely is an efficient market, then you can uh, expect the miners to expend up to one dollar to earn this. A reward of one dollar, right? Maybe they spend like ninety nine cents, right? If, if they would spend more, then some people would just stop stop bidding, and if they spend less, then more people would would start to bid. So we know that the equilibrium there's always an equilibrium between like the reward and um, the hash rate. Do you guys think that um, I mean miners earn the block reward, but they also earn a transaction fee? I'm not sure how much of the total money they get is. Uh, transaction fee, I think very little. But do you guys think there will be a spike in transaction fees to somewhat offset the, you know, missing 6.5 uh, Bitcoins you get per block? Um, I think that would be really uh, <laughs> unlikely. Um, so, by the way, so transaction fees are on 2% of uh, the block subsidy right now, or 2% of the overall block, block reward right now. So they would have to jump by a lot to make up for that. Um, But mainly, I think that's very unlikely um, because there's just, just no mechanism to incentivize that kind of race. So people pay people pay transaction fees to um, basically pay for priority when the market for block space is crowded. So then you want a bit more than the other people to get in and they don't get in. Right? Um, and this has really nothing to do with how much security Bitcoin needs. How much security Bitcoin needs... Uh, And how much money miners need to make is like is not present in that equation. It's just how much uh, how much is priority in the block space market worth to me right now? And the answer right now is it's worth nothing because blocks are never full and haven't been full for like one and a half years, and there so there are basically almost no fees uh, at all, and. Um, And, and I think it's unlikely that's going to change because you, you can see um, you can see security or like this, the kind of like the stable consensus that we talked about as uh, as a common good. Um, everyone wants it. Everyone benefits from it, but um, nobody wants to pay for it. And it's always better for you as an individual if others pay for it and you just consume it. Uh, and the reason for that is just there's, is, there's just no way to exclude someone from using it, other than if if the blocks are actually crowded and you don't get in, then you pay for priority. But you don't pay to create that good; you just pay to get in, and that's that's just a very big disconnect. Um, and it's not really clear how the incentives of all that would shape out. Yeah, and I think that brings up a quite interesting point. So. Like often, at least I've done this, and I, I guess a lot of the discourse in the space around this particular issue has done that, of conflating kind of the role of the block reward, as you've said, uh, to ensure uh, to ensure the well-ordering of Bitcoin's blockchain going forward, and the role of the transaction fee for allocating block space efficiently. And obviously, those are quite different concerns and should be treated quite differently. It's quite interesting because even looking back at, I don't know if you mentioned it in your research in your research paper or another, but even Satoshi kind of conflates the two or not explicitly, but kind of implicitly in the fact that he does, he kind of hand waves the issue of uh, the decline in block subsidy and the effect it will have on economics by saying that in the long term, transaction fees can replace block rewards and doesn't really address the issue, you know, much further from that. And I guess at this point, since there's so many things we can talk about in regards to what effect a decline in block subsidy can have. Maybe this is a good point to kind of start talking a more, bit more about your paper in particular, because in the way that I see it, you can kind of separate the paper into two halves. So the first half kind of formalizes uh, the economic incentives, which ensure that Bitcoin works the way it does. And the second half kind of talks about some of the issues around associated with the decline in block subsidy. So it would be quite interesting has to, If you could, you know, in the simplest way possible, describe the first half first and explain uh, how Bitcoin's economic incentives work to ensure that Bitcoin works. And then we can start talking a bit bit more about the, the decline in block subsidy and 
what some of the solutions to that problem could be? Sure. Um, so yeah, we already covered uh, part of the first half. The first half is pretty much um, how Bitcoin works. Uh, what are the goals of Bitcoin and what are the mechanisms to reach these goals? And um, so we go, so we already established why Bitcoin needs miners, um, but we didn't really cover so far what, 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 why are we actually concerned that if we don't pay miners enough that something bad will happen? Um, so we give miners this, ab this ability to, um, to, to uh, state the cha uh, change the state of the blockchain and they can really do two things with that. They can rewrite the chain, um, for example, to make double spends um, or to just to undermine the stability of consensus with frequent uh, reorganizations of the, of the blockchain, frequent rewrites. Um, or they could just stop writing the chain altogether, which would be a form of censorship or denial of service. Um, and they can do this either for like groups of people or groups of transactions or even for the network as a whole. And um, we have to ask, or miners have to ask themselves, themselves, they have this hash power and they can either point it at the tip of the chain and mine in like the way that the users want. They just process transactions based on who pays the most fees and they always mine on the tip of the chain. Or they can use the hash power to do something else. Maybe they make double spends or maybe they take a large financial bet against Bitcoin, right? the, 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 the value of Bitcoin, and then they just make a complete denial of service of the network. Nobody can, nobody can get any more transactions in. So that, that's also possible, right? And that would certainly undermine um, public trust in Bitcoin. Um, and if... Um, if the if the block reward, which is basically how much Bitcoin spends to secure itself, or how you, how much users spend to secure the network, if that gets really small compared to the network value, which is basically how much Bitcoin as a network is worth to users, then then we could get into uh, into trouble, in my opinion. Actually, I have two points to add. The first one is, I mean. Now we established the, the transaction fee paid is a minuscule amount of the you know money that miners earn. So if we extrapolate from the upcoming halving to the last block ever, um, when like there's no reward anymore, what's the incentive then for miners to do something? Mm -hmm. That's my first question. And the second question um, would be: Do you guys think that Bitcoin now is you know? The miners, let's say only the efficient miners stay there, the big miners, probably there's more centralization there, or definitely actually. Uh, so the likelihood of attacks uh, is going to increase as a result of the decrease in centralization. Uh, I would maybe answer the second question first, um, because I think it's a common misconception that um, Bitcoin basically assumes an honest majority at all times or that, that Bitcoin is somehow in trouble if, even if one guy controlled all the hash rate. And I, I personally think that's, uh, that that assumption is not needed. Uh, and even Satoshi is misunderstood. So he, Satoshi didn't believe Bitcoin needs an honest majority or uh, that we have to assume that for the system to be secure. He only assumed that miners act rationally, meaning they maximize their own self-interest. And... Um, he wrote in the white paper, the incentive may help encourage, the incentive being the block reward, right? The incentive may help encourage nodes to stay honest. If a greedy attacker is able to assemble more CPU power than all the honest nodes, he would have to choose between using it to defraud people by stealing back his payments or using it to generate new coins. You ought to find it more profitable to play by the rules, such rules that favor him with more new coins than everyone else combined, than to undermine the system and the validity of his own wealth. Um, I think that very clearly illustrates this decisions that miners have uh, between mining honestly or mining to basically uh, disrupt uh, the network in, in any way. And um, we need to make sure Nakamoto consensus makes sure that uh, it encourages the majority to be honest. It doesn't assume the majority to be honest. And there's a very big difference there. And if we know that we need to encourage the majority to, to be honest, then we can, then the logical conclusion is that how much money we pay 
we pay uh, for that in incentive or the size of that incentive needs to be in some form symmetrical uh, to what we want to protect. Yeah, actually, that's a really good point. Um, true, right? I mean, if the costs of uh, any of the attacks that you outlined is, is probably too high for someone who's just optimizing for his own, uh, you know, maximizing their own utility. What about the first question, though? Um, you know, now we are in the year 2140. Everyone's driving electric cars. Now a miner receives, you know, only the transaction fees uh, for, you know, for solving a block. How, how do you see that playing out? So um, I would first say that this is really, this is going to be a problem a lot sooner than, 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 than 2140. Um, so the block reward will have to 1.9% um, this year and to 0.9% uh, in 2024 and to 0.4% of network value in only 2028, 20, right? So then we are already way, like, way, way, way lower than we are right now. And I think in 16 years, we have issued 99.9% .9 of all rewards. So, um, so, so I would put that as a disclaimer. So th this will matter sooner than in over 100, in, in 120 years from now. Um, and apart from that, um, it's a good point. Um, so first, I would, I would say that um, transaction, transaction fees can absolutely pay for the incentive for miners, and that's all good. So if the transaction fees are high, high enough, then I think the system works fine, just like it does today. Um, you, uh, I think you're alluding to a, a paper that's called On the Instability of Bitcoin Without the Block Reward, which looks at Bitcoin um, basically in a transaction fee only paradigm. And it, it raises, um, it draws, draws up an interesting scenario where um, basically transaction fees are very volatile. So um, at some point there's a very large uh, transaction or, or there's a burst of demand to fill blocks um, leading to large transaction fees. And then imagine that one miner just takes all these transactions and puts them in a block and publishes that block. And now you're, you're, you're the next miner whose turn it is to make a block, but there's, there are no more transactions. So what do you do? You can either make a block and add it to the blockchain, but it doesn't pay you anything because there's no transaction fees. Or you could um, basically reorganize the block of the previous miner and take his transaction fees, right? Um, so... Um, what they uh, conclude is that there might be some volatility around the tip of the blockchain where miners fight for transaction fees. Um, but that's not really um, a concern in my opinion, just because if, if a miner knows that the next miner will reorganize this block, then he can just take only some of the transaction fees and leave some like the other half uh, or, or more to the miners that come after it to incentivize them to build on his block, right? So um, I think uh, the big, the big, big concern is that transaction fees won't be high enough. Um, but other than that, I think um, the incentives of that look fine. That's very interesting. I mean, on that note of you know, talking about transaction fees not being high enough to, to, to sort of make this cost effective for miners uh, to continue mining in an honest uh, in an honest manner. Um, one of the things, one of the things that you know, one of the sort of possibilities is that you know, with the changing unit economics of the mining business, uh, we'll end up in a situation where. Uh, those those miners with a certain economies of scale and you know with a bunch of capital on hand and people who didn't over lever themselves during bull, bull runs uh, to buy a ton of equipment or hire a ton of uh, engineers or, or something um, uh, those miners whose unit economics are sound in this in this sort of new uh, this new havened landscape uh, those miners will consolidate and they will be able to uh, collude. I'm curious what, what the group's thoughts are on the possibility of increasing centralization of miners 
and uh, their abilities to collude with one another as opposed to sort of uh, uh, the case which you had brought up earlier where they sort of, uh, you know, they reorganize the previous miners block, which is really scalping off of someone else, uh, another miner. What if they were to just collude to take almost a fixed uh, transaction fee per block? Uh, do you guys think that's possible? Uh, um, so yeah, you you um, you're touching on uh, a solution to this problem, right? That transaction fees might not be high enough, at least uh, in the eyes of the miners. Um, and it, this also goes back to what we discussed earlier that the the block reward and the the, the, the basically the incentive that pays for stable consensus is a is a common good, and common goods are. Um, by definition, non-excludable, and that's why they are common goods, because anyone can use them and there's no way to exclude anyone from using it. You're absolutely right that a, a majority of hash power could um, could make block space excludable um, by, yeah, basically by taking a minimum fee. That's, um, that's definitely possible, yeah. It's interesting because the, the sort of catch-22 of that scenario is you get this hyper, uh, I wouldn't say efficient, but rather a very convenient fee market, uh, at least very understandable from a retailer's perspective. But then you also get, um, as a trade-off, you have this increasing centralization of Bitcoin. And then at that point, what does what does Bitcoin even really mean? Is it no different than uh, a centralized fiat currency? I would, well, I would also add to that that uh, it's, it's, it's uh, absolutely not clear that uh, such a scenario would be stable among miners, right? So, um, so one thing to 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 note is that um, if the majority of hash power forms a stable cartel, then yes, they can uh, put a lot of rules into place, um, especially regarding other miners, um, because they could just and we, and we see this uh, right now with Bitcoin Cash. Actually, I I would encourage you to check out a, an article that I just published today um, on on this. Uh, developer text that was established in Bitcoin Cash. This is basically a minor activated soft fork. Um, and it means that, uh, yeah, basically they make the rules um, stricter. So some transactions or some blocks that were previously valid are now invalid. Um, but it's, it's, it's backward compatible, uh, uh, compatible with, uh, with old nodes. Um, in this case, um, miners could Miners could make uh, such changes, uh, with, like over the heads of the users, uh, in a sense, by just threatening to just ignore all blocks made by the minority, uh, the hash rate minority, and they they can do that because being the majority, they know that their chain will always grow faster in the long run, and even if the the minority gets one, two, three, four, five blocks in a row on the blockchain, we know that statistically speaking, the majority will overtake them at some point and then all the minorities' blocks will be reorganized and will be orphaned. Um, but it's not clear that a, ma a majority of 51% is stable at all because uh, let's say you are... You have the same tragedy of the commons among miners pretty much. So... Um, why should you uh, take part in that cartel when you could uh, and like refuse? So the, the rule would be to, we don't include any transactions below $100, right? But now there's a transaction in there that's $90. So why should you stick to the cartel and not you know, break the rule uh, and include the $90 transaction? That's, that's quite fascinating. Uh, I think the, uh, the analogy of kind of this... Uh this majority minor group kind of censoring a minority minor group is very similar in my head, at least to the analogy of a, kind of a, a casino and its house against, uh, you know, uh, a, a gambler In the long run, the odds are always in the, the house's favor. But then you bring up, you bring up this interesting point where why, why does, uh, why does this majority group continue to collude with each other? Why don't they cheat? I mean, just, sort of with no mathematical or economic grounding necessarily, I just would imagine that in the long run, it seems like, uh, uh, it seems like, uh, colluding with each other and continuing to maintain stability, 
would maximize their profits. Uh, do do you not think that 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 would be the case, or do you think it would manifest itself differently? Like the uh, the benefit from cheating would outweigh uh, the benefit from being in this kind of harmonious con- uh, collusion. Um, I think that's a that's a cra- um, basically classic prisoner's dilemma um, where. Yes, uh, basically the collective payoff for everyone would be higher if they if they cooperated. But uh, it's uh, for 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 any individual miner, the incentive to cheat is just uh, is just larger in the short term. So yeah, I don't think it would be stable. Right, and and sort of on top of that, you know, it's unclear among this majority group of miners. You know, maybe there's one entity that is a majority among the majority. And, and sort of the incentives of each of these entities might uh, might not be as clear uh, cut as, uh, as as like the models uh, might suggest. And I would also add that um, so a mistake that many people make when they talk, when they think about um, the economics of, of Bitcoin and, and miners, they always see that the miners as a basically coherent group that's that's kind of closed off from the rest of the economy. And uh, that, that's really a big mistake, in my opinion, because as we said, uh, anyone can be a miner, right? So that, that's, that's the innovation in Bitcoin, that anyone can, uh, can participate in this. Um, and that's where it gets its, uh, its censorship resistant and its permissionless access, because if, if users are basically want to pay more <laughs> for someone who makes better updates, then they can, they can pay more, right? Just this, uh, they what's uh what the transaction fees kind of put in question is what is the the mechanism for users to to coordinate to fund this kind of system yeah definitely uh, i i see i see exactly where you're coming from it is it is a interesting dynamic and to black box crypto from the rest of the economic world is is uh just too much a, of, of a mistake because this is all money at the end of the day to um these mining businesses uh I mean, on that note, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm sort of curious. I mean, we're all here because at some level we believe this technology will work, um, you know, or, or at least, you know, we hope we can make some money off of it. But then I, I, I guess, you know, Hasu, from, from your perspective, like what is the solution to this or, or what are some of the solutions to this, uh, dilemma of, uh, you know, sort of continual, continual having, uh, uh, and uh, uh, sort of transaction fees. Like, where do you where do you see uh, where do you see the, the the like? Do you see a mining market coming to an efficient solution to this? Uh, and how, how how would that how would that play out? Um, so I don't think the mining market can solve this, um, as because as we said, it's a it's a prisoner's dilemma, right? So miners are always better off maximizing their, their own short term revenue than just then cooperating with everyone else in the in the long term. Um, and it's also it's also not clear that there's like a very uh, an easy solution from the user side. That we the goal of our paper was to map out the solution space. How how do you even think about coming up with a solution? And um, so we have two, basically we have four ways of thinking about this, four directions, how we can attack the problem. And the first would be to increase demand for block space. So we keep the the current funding mechanism with just the priority market for block space, um, but we increase demand for block space. How do we do that? So a very easy example would be the Lightning Network. The Lightning Network is a layer two solution for Bitcoin. And it adds a whole new way of using Bitcoin, like a whole new set of properties that you can get out of Bitcoin. It's immediate, like immediate transactions. It's more private, um, right? So uh, that, that would be like the, the big advantages. And it's also very trustless, same as the Bitcoin base there. So it doesn't make very strong trade-offs. Um, and that could, you know, that's something that we would expect would drive demand for more base layer transactions because... The Lightning Network needs uh, it needs a certain a footprint uh, on the Bitcoin base base layer, and you can imagine not just the Lightning Network, but you can imagine several other solutions like that, several other layers on top of Bitcoin that offer that expand uh, the basically the space of things that people can do with Bitcoin, uh, and thus 
that ultimately create more on-chain transactions as well. We can also add more or like allow more asset types on Bitcoin. Uh, like for example, so, so Tether was uh, was on Bitcoin for the longest time. It's now no longer on Bitcoin. And personally, I don't think that's a, that's a very, uh, that's, it's very likely because just Bitcoin doesn't, is not really optimized for, uh, for, for other assets. Um, we can we can incentivize or make it easy for uh, for other uh, networks, other companies, and so on, basically to use Bitcoin as security anchor for their hash data. Uh, and we can make better smart contract functionality to enable, let's say, covenants or better multi-signature, all that you know, all that kind of stuff. Just make Bitcoin transactions make more useful to drive more demand. That will be the first one. And we can also tackle the, basically the priority market from the other side, which is let's lower at the same time the supply of block space, right? Because the transaction fees are, this is the point where demand and supply meet. So we can either increase demand or we can lower supply or we can do both. And um, block space, we can lower either manually or we can also do it automatically, but in a non-discretionary way by introducing something uh, that we we call it uh, adaptive or elastic block size. Um, in this proposal, the, the, the block size would um, adjust downward. It could not adjust upward beyond the current cap for, blocks, for block space um, because there are very good technical reasons for that limit to be in place, but it could adjust downward. So there's never any excess space, right? It would look at how many fees were paid uh, in the last, let's say, 100 blocks or the last five blocks, and then it would remove, it would adjust downward to remove excess block space and thereby create fee pressure. Those would be the first two. Are there any questions about those? So, uh, no, no, no questions off, off the top of my head, but it's quite, uh, I, I do think it's quite uh, interesting when you talk about an elastic sort of block size. Uh, sort of what you're implying is miners are I mean, sort of baked into the protocol almost. Uh, there's like a moving average of how many transactions have filled the last hundred blocks. Uh, and and they're, uh, they're using that to determine the size of the, uh, you know, the next incremental block. I mean, do you think that something like this at a protocol level um, would be... Uh, would be feasible within the Bitcoin network. Do you think this is something that could get passed? Oh yeah, I, I, I personally think it's very likely that we will get this just because um, it's a solution that only applies in some cases, but in, this, in the times so or in the situations where it doesn't apply, it doesn't do anything bad. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a free roll for the, for the network to adopt this. There's just nothing, no, at least as far as I know, there are no negatives to this. It's better sometimes, but never worse, um, because pretty much everyone agrees, uh, and everyone I, I talked to from the developer community agrees that Bitcoin needs the incentive. It needs uh, a sufficiently high block reward to be secure, and this is kind of a backup solution for times where the fees are not high enough. So we can at least drive them a bit higher, even if this is not our only solution. You know, if there if if a certain consensus can be achieved by the stakeholders, I, I could definitely see something like an elastic block size uh, taking shape as well. I mean, the 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 initial point that you brought up of sort of uh, almost uh, having multiple layers to uh, uh, incentivize uh, more base layer uh, transaction volume uh, and sort of a smart contract system that. That almost seems uh, leaning leaning more on the Ethereum end of the spectrum, and I wonder just almost at an ideological level if the if the Bitcoin community could ever get to the point where they'd be willing to uh, to succumb and say, yeah, uh, we're in fact building something much like uh, uh, Ethereum. Uh, what are what are your thoughts on on sort of uh, Bitcoin eventually becoming? something like Ethereum in the event that there isn't uh, an elastic block size implementation? Uh, oh, I think the, so there's basically no diff, there's no connection between the elastic block size and Ethereum. Um, 
So you can bid this on Bitcoin today. It's no problem. Uh, you don't need any. You don't need any more sm smart contract functionality for that. Um, the big difference between Bitcoin and Ethereum, when it comes to their, um, uh, when it comes to smart contracts, is Ethereum is, is stateful, uh, so it has um, a global state, and, and Bitcoin, um, in Bitcoin state only exists uh, locally. Um, so Bitcoin is stateless. It ha stateless. It, ha it has um, basically a very simple um, scripting uh, functionality, right? Um, and I don't think that is ever going to change or that should change. Um, yeah. So I, I don't think, uh, I don't think there's any connection to the elastic block size. And I don't think that Bitcoin, um, Bitcoin will ever be stateful, uh, in terms of its smart contract functionality. So there are a lot of ways you can make Bitcoin smart contracts more useful. Well, so, uh, without making them stateful in, in my opinion. So covenants, for example, would be uh, would be a, a, something that almost every developer wants. Uh, then you have L, basically you need some changes for L two. L two is um, is a new uh, form of payment channel that could make the Lightning Network much better. Um, so they that's something that's uh, very likely to make it into Bitcoin at some point, in my opinion. Um, yeah, I, I just think that um, there are some things we can do to make uh, Bitcoin smart contract functionality better without making it anything like Ethereum. Uh, I mean, just 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 to jump off what you what, what you just mentioned, Hasu. Uh, uh, I actually I actually think that was uh, a good uh, uh, a, a good point that I didn't initially consider. But statefulness, I guess, is one of the crucial components of Ethereum, and if Bitcoin can successfully manage to uh, sort of build smart contract and a smart contract system and, uh, you know, multiple layers, layer two solutions, sort of whatever number of layers you want to go beyond that, uh, uh, then it would still be sufficiently different than Ethereum, you know, sort of avoiding the whole debate of whether Bitcoin is morphing into Ethereum or Ethereum is morphing into Bitcoin. Oh yeah, I mean, I would just add maybe that's um, that's not something uh, uh, that all of your, your listeners know, but um, every Bitcoin, every coin in Bitcoin is also wrapped in a smart contract. Uh, so Bitcoin does have smart contract functionality; it's just not stateful as Ethereum says. But you can define all kinds of spending conditions for Bitcoins as well, like multi-signature, like time lock, and stuff like that. Maybe on a light note, you know, a fun question, personal question for me. Um, you know, the room in my apartment is free now. I don't pay electricity. In light of the halfling that's coming up, Hazu, do you think it's still worth it for me to get some uh, mining equipment and uh, mine bitcoins? I mean, when your I mean, when your electricity is free and you think you can get away with that, and sure. <laughs> <laughs> No, awesome, awesome. Okay, um, it was awesome you know, to speak with you guys. Very interesting topic. Special thanks to you, Hasu, as our special guest. Um, uh -huh. We look forward, you know, maybe in the coming weeks after the uh, actual happening happens, we could sit together again to see, you know, if the things that we said actually happen or not. Um, but thank you, everyone, for joining, and we look forward to seeing you next time. This was it from the Immune team. Thanks for listening, and if you have any questions or would like to see your topic on our next episode, reach out to us on Twitter or LinkedIn. We'll see you next week.